Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Soba. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 230. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a fantastic show and trying something new as well this week. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We have the main fiction straight away is by Kathleen Ann Gunan. It is Electric Rains and we're doing a little bit of cross promotion with Lightspeed magazine as well. So I'll get into that. Then we have our Cheapskates, the fact article by Adam Perort. Adam, is it this? Have I got it right this time? <laughs> Adam Perort, yes, hopefully I have. Adam, thank you very much. This has turned out to be a nice little fact article, Adam. Thank you for coming on board. Then we have, what I was thinking of doing, and I've been thinking for a while, I don't know why I've never kind of progressed it, is calling a little kind of another section, First Chapters. And basically the idea is someone comes along who's wrote a book and, you know, narrates the first few chapters of that, like, proper book. And it's just to give you, like, a little kind of, that's uh, quite fancy that. Do you know what I mean? Quite fancy that. We have The Pillars of Hercules by David Constantine. David, as you know, is, well, I don't know if you do or not, but David is David Williams, who did the Autumn Rain trilogy, which just was science fiction goodness. Now, we'll, I'll get into a little bit more about The Pillars of Hercules as well. So just to see what you, you feel about just having the first few chapters, just to kind of entice you into... You, Parting with your shekels there, <laughs> getting that copy. So that is today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. First up is Electric Rains by Kathleen Ann Goonan. First off, before we get any further, it is narrated by Christy Yance. And we haven't got enough narrations by Christy. Christy's kind of... Going down that dream of being a writer. Christy, I want your narrations, man. Please. They're fantastic. So there we go. Christy, thank you so much for doing this. I've had this story for a while there, but John Joseph Adams kind of knew about because, you know, John Joseph Adams and Christy and uh, Mr. and Mrs. And John says, oh, well, he's going to run this story. It would be a nice little bit of cross-promotion. And like you say, when John comes on the phone there with Lightspeed, anything to do with Lightspeed, I kind of just my knees buckle. Because I just think... What John's done with Lightspeed, you know, and now John is the kind of the owner, you know, he's the he's the kind of the big chief daddy there. He's kind of combined fantasy magazine, Lightspeed magazine, it's all one. And they're just doing a fantastic job. And if that magazine and John Joseph Adams are not somewhere on these Hugo ballots when they come out in a few days' time, there'll be a hell to appear. <laughs> you know what I mean? So Pop up with Lightspeed. John's got the actual word. What he's going to do is play this story as well. But if you wanted the words to this story as well, John's got them up on Lightspeed as well. His latest fantasy story over there is by David Barr Kirtley Beauty as well. 
And he's got an interview with, and you know what I mean? This is quite good as well. Well, this is actually from the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, an interview with Ian MacDonald. So there you go as well. Do pop over there to Lightspeed, like I say. If that's what you like, you know what I mean? If this is what you like, this kind of this science fiction fantasy stuff, John just hits the nail on the head. The story first came out, Electric Rains, in 2007, and it was in the Eclipse One, which was published by Nightshade Books and editor Jonathan Strawn. Kathleen's Hard in 1996, The Bones of Time in 2007, In War Times, and 2011, The Shared Dream. Short fiction started writing in 1991 with a small man, and the latest one, or the last one, was 2011, Creature with Wings, which came out in Engineering Infinity, again, and edited by Jonathan Strand, Solaris Publishers. And like I said before there, it is narrated by Christy Jan Christie. Thank you so much. Get more narrations. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Electric Rains by Kathleen Ann Gunan. Ella sat by Nana's body for two days before she pushed it out the window. She had spent the first half-day realizing what death was, the next half-day grieving, the following morning waking and feeling reverent if somewhat nauseated and trying to decide what to do. It was three in the morning when she finally did it, and it was almost the season of electric rains. There had been one already, fitful and slight, harbinger of spring and the season of avoidance. Once the weather warmed in Washington, D.C., thunderstorms boiled up almost every evening, preceded by the leaves in the park across the street turning up silver undersides. Ella was twelve and had grown up knowing that she could not let the rains or the rare snows touch her. But Ella had to take Nana home. Besides, she was beginning to smell bad. Night was a good time, the time least likely to rain. In the end, it was easy— there was no heat in the old lady's three-room apartment with the toweringly high ceilings and the hole in the plaster that looked like South America, so she'd not gotten very warm. The old lady had an electrical setup, but used it only for cooking and powering a space heater in the most bitterly cold weather, hooking up big sparking clamps which scared Ella. There were people who kept the grid alive, down by Anacostia. Engineers and those whom they taught, people who had escaped the first electric rains, like Ella and Nana. By now, the body was very stiff. Ella was not surprised to find that the tiny old lady was not terribly heavy. She wrapped the body in the sheet upon which she had died, which made her easy to pull over the shiny wood floor, through the sitting room with its yellowed lace doilies and once valuable international knickknacks, the ancient Chinese vase, the intricately carved Vietnamese table, the rug from 19th century Baghdad, and managed to lift her to chairs and then push her onto an oval table of shiny hard wood, a table she herself had polished only days before, one of the unending chores the old lady had had her do so they could live with dignity in this shit-eating world. She shoved the table on its clawed wheels to the window. Grunting, she shoved up the reluctant sash. Paint chips flurried in the moonlit air and the gust of wind took Ella by surprise. It was warm. That was not good. She leaned out the window, sniffed the air. It smelled too warm, like sudden spring. Perhaps it was, and the stars were obscured by cloud. No matter. She had to do this, and soon. She looked up and down the length of the street, waited until a lone car stopped at the light and then moved past low, prowling beams of light thrown ahead of them. She leaned out further, saw a few ragged shapes curled on the sidewalk. She swallowed. The rain people. 
those who didn't go down into the metro but let the rain wash them countless times, could sometimes be normal, harmless. But sometimes... She looked back at Nana's face, her delicately curved nose, her imp-like face overwhelmed by wrinkles, her high lacy collar always kept clean and white. A middle-aged man used to visit and talk to Nana blusteringly with wide, frantic gestures. He always frowned at the sight of Ella, and she knew that the man did not like her being there and couldn't do a damn thing about it. She didn't like him much, either. Little bitch, he called her, the time he had squeezed her back in among Nana's spicy, musty clothes, but she had kicked him hard, and he hadn't tried it again. She sat down in one of the high-backed chairs and watched Nana for a moment. Then, through the doubled, wavy glass of the high windows, she saw a light streak through the heavens. A monitor plane checking for contagion. Very rare. Nana laughed derisively whenever they saw one. It won't be safe in our lifetimes, Missy. At least, her voice gentled, not in mine. Ella knew, though, that the light was the spirit of Nana and that it was all right, that she did not have to tell anyone that she could stay here as long as she wanted to. That was Nana's plan. Nana had talked about papers she had signed and showed her the key to the safety deposit box at the bank. That nasty old man would do something about it, she was sure. He blabbered about the apartment being a gold mine and called Nana stupid all the time, even though he was her nephew. But because of the newspaper room, she knew that both of them might well be insane. In the back of the townhouse was a huge room filled with stacks of old Washington posts, yellowed, crumbling, musty-smelling. Nana had her cut out the crossword puzzles from each day, right by the funnies, and put them into a box from which she drew. She did one a day. The newspapers were sorted roughly into years— but the year that Ella was most interested in was the year, the very day, that terrorists had run an Amtrak Silver Eagle from New York into Union Station in downtown Washington at full speed, crashing right into the lobby of the station. They had hoped that in the resulting confusion they would be able to get into the Capitol building, a block away, and set off their dirty bomb. Their particular dirty bomb was not full of radioactive material. It was instead full of what became taken up by the atmosphere— rather than filling up the Capitol building. That material was what had turned into electric rains. The Post headline for that day said, Terrorists Decimate Dirty Bomb. The terrorists had, apparently, been Ella's parents. She deduced this by reading several months' worth of Washington Posts and hid them from Nana. That was not difficult in a room full of newspapers. There was probably no bank anymore with the important papers in it, or if there was, there was no one to pay attention to them anyway. Ella knew that Nana had lived here all her life and had seen her beloved city change and change and change and all of the relatives and friends who really cared for her die until she was all alone except for Ella, in the place she owned. The rest of the building she had divided into apartments when younger and rented them. Now she kept the squatters out with fierce bars, preferring them to be empty rather than full of the rain riff raff which now inhabited Washington. Ella climbed onto the table, knelt, and pushed the woman's shoulders. She leaned forward and grunted. It was harder than she thought it would be. Finally, her legs and her hips were outside, and Ella, with a shriek, let go. The window had a deep sill which overlooked 14th Street in Washington, D.C., between R and S Streets. It was a place Ella had been made to understand from listening to endless stories of hell and glory from Nana— burnished to mahogany smoothness by many tellings, which had felt the ebb and flow of time. 
When Nana's grandfather had bought the building, the street was genteel, alive with a shop for each need, even if that need was for fresh flowers, a need which Nana and now Ella felt keenly as stomach hunger. Brilliant purple zinnias mixed with broad creamy spider chrysanthemums, studded with red baby rosebuds, ah, set on the grand dining room table, they made one feel royal. But Nana, Ella often observed, had no problem feeling royal. She told Ella tales of the city lights being akin to blood for her. Tales of being young and speeding about the city in a fine gray car, and then jolting on the farting buses where they still ran. Now there were no buses, and the metro entrances glowed. People had taken refuge underground when the electric rains had begun, but of course it had been too late. The rains, with their voices, had gotten them, had spread its contagion among them. Now if they went anywhere, they had to walk— even after Nana was attacked and raped. After that, she walked her same route, head held high, Ella in tow and terrified, a heavy gun in her pocket that she practiced with once a week in the back alley on bottles and cans, laughing every time she blew one to bits. Once she dropped a young woman gangster just like that, when the gangster walked toward them holding a knife, and then she became known and feared, even by the people who danced up and down the street singing, What a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. The electric rain people sometimes had ragged parades which marched beneath their window. They blew horns and usually wore hats to hide their terrible deformities. A warm breeze stirred the curtains. Ella was filled with terrified reverence as she gazed down on Nana, who had landed spread eagle face up. The sheet had caught on a ledge and fluttered just below Ella, so Nana gazed at the stars. Nana loved the stars and had taught Ella their names. She had a formidable telescope she kept inside a little concrete room on the roof. On clear nights they would go up, cold or hot, unlock the giant padlock, roll out the telescope onto the bumpy roof, and gaze all night, drunk on pulsing lights arranged with the precision of numbers. If you got close, they'd change position so you wouldn't recognize them, but of course you can't get that close, Nana told Ella. One night, as a great treat, she'd shot out the six remaining park lights so that the sky would be darker. Ha! she laughed. Think the cops will show up? Not a chance. Ella knew there was not a chance. She knew what cops were, but had never seen one. She only knew that now the park would be dark at night forever. I used to go to lectures with my dad every Friday night at the Naval Observatory, she told Ella in her deep, rough voice, sticking her gun back in her pocket. Now that's dark. Gentleman, so kind, too good for this world. Nothing like me. But Ella saw gentleness everywhere in her, in the way she took care of Ella, how she took care to keep her in fine silk pajamas, how she made sure the linens were always clean, lowering the laundry down to Ella waiting nervously on the street with a red wagon that said Radio Flyer on the side, then trundling down to deep clean laundromat. Shitty machines, she always said, and they cheat us on the drying time, but what can you do? A litany Ella had grown quite used to. Once she asked if they could not just dry the clothes on a clothesline and had received a lecture about the possibility of electric rain polluting the clothes. The deep clean was operated by a very old man who wore very clean clothes, a fine and eccentric mix of clothes, thin wool suits in winter with vests and colorful silk ties and combat boots, beautiful starched cotton dresses with aprons in the summer that he'd claimed he'd stolen from the Smithsonian Historic Collection. He ran his machines with a generator and spent most of his time gathering fuel. Well, now Nana had returned to the streets. 
Ella was very unhappy as she gazed down at her. She should have wrapped her more tightly, she thought now. She should have hidden her from the world. She should have cushioned the fall. Suddenly frantic, she ran for the linen closet. Every sheet was ironed and folded. Nana knew how to take up the time of day, that was certain. Ella pulled a chain and the closet lit up and she felt the neat but sparse row with her finger and lit on the smoothest, oldest one, white cotton limp with age and use, smooth as glass, and yanked it out. She paused to look around the apartment. She felt in her pocket for the key. She went to Nana's bedroom, got her purse, which she had never before violated, a shapeless black leather affair, and pulled out the wallet, stuck it next to the key in her pocket. The gun was already there. She stepped out into the hall, holding the sheet, locked the door, and ran down five flights of stairs. At the foot of the stairs, she pulled out the keychain and felt for the key to the closet beneath the stairs. Unlocking the storage closet, she pulled out the laundry wagon. Once outside, she felt exposed. She'd never been outside alone that she could remember. She took a deep breath and looked down at Nana. She expected blood, but there was none. Maybe death had dried it. Maybe it was frozen in Nana's veins now that there was no heart to move it. She heard glass break a block away and distant gunfire. She felt in her pocket Nana's heavy gun, filled with bullets. She had checked, as Nana had taught her. She hastily spread the sheet on the sidewalk next to Nana. Taking a deep breath, she knelt and shoved her hands beneath Nana's shoulders and bony hip and pushed. Nana rolled onto the sheet, twice. There, now she was well on, and Ella took the edge of the sheet, pulled it over her face, and felt better. Pushing with all her might, she rolled the woman up in the sheet like an egg roll, tucking the ends in. Now for the hard part. Nana was not tall. In fact, she was no taller than Ella, and often complained of having shrunk. Ella tipped the wagon on its side and pulled it next to Nana. Now what? She set the wagon back up. She could do it. She had lifted her onto the chairs, the table, hadn't she? But she was a lot more tired now. She heard shuffling footsteps behind her and whirled. A shape of rags was making its way toward her. The shape had a greasy silk scarf folded like a triangle and tied beneath the chin. Probably a woman. She looked at Ella, the wagon, and the sheeted shape. Squatting, she shoved her arms beneath the body and lifted into the wagon. Ella noticed that she had very large feet and dark, untied boots. She stammered, Thank you. The person said, Sorry, and shuffled along. Nana's torso and thighs took up the wagon. Her legs stuck out stiffly behind, and her head was just a bump. Ella picked up the handle and paused. She looked out across the park, her only play yard for so long, and then only rarely. She remembered little before Nana, a beautiful face framed by smooth, sweet-smelling pitch-black hair which swung forward and tickled Ella's face. An older brother. Ella would always remember him, his baggy sweater hanging from wide shoulders. She never told these things to Nana, nor did she tell her about the special school she attended, and though she knew that her whole family had died, she no longer believed the story Nana told her that they had all been shot, all of them, by a thin white man for no reason at all as they left a restaurant in Georgetown, while Nana watched from inside, then rushed out and grabbed her, then jumped into a taxi when Ella was about four or five. She had no memory of such a thing, and she remembered things before. She knew who she was. She had been there. 
at the train crash, and now she had seen the newspaper article. Terrorist child saved by decorated admiral. She took another deep breath of sharp air. The park benches across the street were filled with dark, lumpy shapes. She and Nana planted tulips there every fall, which they got from the cold basement of a deserted nursery, and nothing delighted them so much as to see them come up every spring. They did not even mind when people picked them, for flowers are meant to be picked, Nana said. But for a precious two weeks they flamed gold and red, and when the twisty old leaves were darkened with rain the flowers took on deeper color, and then everything was so absolutely beautiful. But now the blooms had come and gone. A match flared tiny across the street, then went out. Fourteenth Street stretched before her. She had a very long walk ahead of her. She picked up the wagon handle, glad that the street was level here. Her memory of the route was of changing constellations of lights, for once a month they had walked this route at night, Nana swinging her gun in her hand openly. Exercise, she would exclaim with satisfaction at regular intervals. Exercise, this is my city too, damn it. Now Ella was terrified. Here she was, all alone, pulling a dead old woman in a wagon through no man's land. She leaned forward and yanked hard. She was wearing her glasses. She felt like taking them off, but did not. When she walked with Nana, she had often removed them until their absence was noticed and Nana demanded that she put them back on. She had noticed Ella stumbling several years earlier and checked her eyes. It was then that Ella found out that there were such people as ophthalmologists and that Nana was one, or had been one. After the months of the first electric rains, when her parents, fifth-generation Americans from Kansas City, had been on trial for treason, everyone who could fled the city, or were drawn into the metro station, where, rumor had it, and so they claimed, her parents had placed some of the first uploading devices. Almost everything in Washington shut down and everyone fled. Even the Washington Post faltered, but then cloaked their intrepid reporters in rain gear. Ineffective, they soon learned and soldiered on. The office was two blocks away from the apartment, dark and full of mysterious shapes until Nana flicked on the lights. Ah, she said, electricity, and my equipment is still here, amazing. Sit up there in that chair, Missy, here's a pillow. And she looked into Ella's eyes and clicked this and that until the world was sharp enough to draw tears, sharp enough to force Ella to leave fuzziness behind, enough to make her behold, remember, yearn, and regret. Nana let Ella pick out several frames and made lenses for them all. Who knows if this will even be here next month, she said, sighing. I loved my work. Not many can say that, Missy. Ella had been amazed to see, once the glasses had been slid onto her face and they stepped out into the night, that the moon was a single sharp sliver and not white mounds resembling scoops of snowy ice cream on a velvet black sky. With glasses, she had seen the stars for the first time without the telescope. She had always believed that she needed that special tool to see stars, but there they were, a part of the everyday life of those who could see. But still, she missed the blurry blossoms of light, the fuzzed red tail lights shimmering on wet streets, the towers of lights which, with glasses, were revealed as buildings with actual edges. After that, Nana's newspaper room beckoned increasingly. "'Never could bear to throw away the paper till I'd read the whole thing,' she said." Ella read advertisements from a lost world. She read advice columns about strange and alien problems. 
My mother-in-law is too controlling. When should I tell my fiancé that I'm bisexual? Finally, after figuring out the dates and searching extensively, she found biographies of her parents, starting above the fold on page 1 and continuing on page A9. A thrill went through her when she saw their pictures. Then she burst out crying. They had both worked for the Department of Homeland Defense and decided that what their country was doing was all wrong. Ella felt very strange reading her mother say, "'You have killed my son. I demand to have my daughter back. We only wanted the best for her. She was supposed to be one of the first people uploaded.'" When she read that, Ella stood up and made her way to the window through and over stacks of newspapers. She stared out at the park, with its soldier statue darkened in patches by the rain that had been falling for days, at the shiny, wet streets, no longer full of evacuees but only the occasional car, inside of which, she could only imagine, sat intrepid, stubborn people like Nana. You could tell electric rain from regular rain because the charged nanocrystals glowed. Each one was unimaginably small, the paper said, but together they produced sweeping rainbow effects, and at night a seductively beautiful scintillation, like you were traveling among the stars. It was an initiation device, which changed the biochemistry of your brain, readying you for uploading. Making you want it. You would remain uploaded until the world was ready for peace, when you would be downloaded into the new bodies they would have ready for you by then. Outside, in the air above 14th Street, in colors of electric rains, Ella saw her parents' faces, an afterimage of staring at their newspaper photographs. According to the paper, they had been executed several years earlier, on August 17th of the year of their terrorist attack. Because they worked for the Department of Homeland Defense and knew all possible avenues of attack, so far no one had been able to hack into any of the components of their grand plan— which swept up the east coast and was born inland and then out to sea by hurricanes. By then it was reproducing, and had taken over New York City and all of the coastal cities down to Miami. Ella yanked at the tall window sash, but it was painted shut. She banged and smashed on it with her fist and was finally getting it to open just a crack when Nana came in. She immediately saw the paper and grabbed Ella. Ella fought her, struggled, but Nana was surprisingly strong, and finally Ella collapsed, sobbing into her arms. "'There's nothing out there,' Nana told her, in a surprisingly tender voice. "'You've got to live your life here and now. Remember how I found you.' They planted crops in the backyard of the townhouse—soybeans, corn, potatoes, and kale—and the electric rains did not survive their trip through the soil to the roots." and Ella did not forget what she had read. Ella felt relatively safe on 14th Street, especially with the gun in her pocket. She had no qualms about shooting someone who might want to hurt her. Nana had drilled her fiercely about that. Shoot first and think later. They wouldn't do any different. She knew this was true, and she needed her glasses to see these threats approaching and engaging the degree of threat. But she knew she looked defenseless trudging along with her strange bundle. This walk would take till well past daylight, and then she would find a place to nap and return at night. Now the city unfolded around her with splendor. A liquor store on the next block glowed with neon of all colors, green, blue, yellow, and she slipped her glasses down briefly and saw it. Yes, the unfolding flower the lights became without that focus. She loved that flower, and Nana always had to yank her along at this point. 
She stopped, though, and absorbed the beauty of the flower. The glowing petal point of intersecting green and red, which read quite dully, coors with her glasses on. This was one of the landmarks. She went faster to get past the rotting smell of the dumpster in the alley next to the store. Another landmark. The usual bodies lay in front of it, and some cardboard structures. She was not afraid. These people were the least of her problems. The wagon squeaked past them. They would not rouse even if kicked, for Nana always gave each one a token kick as she passed, saying, "'Scum! Sluggards! Weaklings! You're ruining my beautiful city!' and the like, and no one ever moved. Music blared from the door as Ella passed, and within she saw a bald, wary black man, his head washed in white neon, and rows and rows of bottles. He glanced up from a tiny TV sitting on his counter as she squeaked past. They had a television set, but Nana never turned it on anymore. There was no news, only old sitcoms and soap operas. Now was a block of pawn shops with aluminum fences drawn down in the evening. Terribly dark, no streetlights. She waited on that corner until a car swept down 14th Street and illuminated the sidewalk for a moment. A few bums in doorways, nothing more. She pulled forward as quickly as she could, trying not to seem afraid and hurried, standing straight, as if she were strong and powerful. In the middle of the block, a shadowy figure lurched toward her, and she veered to the left and reached into her pocket, then saw him fall with a thump without any assistance from her. On the next corner, she pulled her glasses down again for an instant, and could just see the red blinking light on top of the monument, which stood atop a low green hill behind all the buildings ahead of her. Prostitutes postured in very short skirts and low blouses, running out and stopping a rare car. A door opened and two got in, an arm reached out and shoved the others away. One fell down on the street and got up, dusting her butt off, yelling, "'Fuck you, too!' But they did not bother Ella as she trundled past. Ella was feeling a little better now. Chinatown was to her left, a few blocks over, and Ella pulled her glasses down to blur the beautiful green dragon which arched high above the buildings hiding the rest of Chinatown, fusing it into a creature who roared into flame with the pulse of her own heartbeat, then returned to a coiled position. There was no clearer place to see the dragon. A block further back or forward, the dragon was hidden by other buildings. She was filled with joy at the sight of the dragon each time she saw it. Once she had been walking down the street and stopped at a tangle of white string at her feet. It was fringed with red and blue, and as she looked, Ella had become aware that it was, miraculously, twisted into the shape of a dragon, perfectly and unmistakably. She had picked it up carefully and pressed it in one of Nana's musty books, which crumpled in tiny sharp triangles from the corners of the pages whenever she opened it, with print so small that it was almost impossible to read. The dragon always gave her strength, and it did now, flashing beneath the moonless sky as if, without her glasses, it were independent of buildings, poised in the sky, dancing for her, telling her that she deserved to be alive for reasons she did not understand. Next came the man on horseback, one of her favorite statues. He brandished a sword. He would protect her. She had seen him many times, dappled with sunlight which moved as the broad branches overhead shifted in the summer wind, plastered by dead orange leaves. The bums there were old and kind, never mean. Nana told her that they were different, that for many bum generations they had preyed on government workers ascending from the metro, an easy touch. And she always gestured toward the site of the old YWCA cafeteria a few blocks over. 
Nana used to meet her friends there for lunch, and Ella knew Nana's memory of the inside almost as well as she knew the inside of their apartment. The tall windows, the wide booths, the cheap, good food, the sound of silverware plonked on trays drifting up to the high ceiling. Nana had a table and two ladder-back chairs she bought from the cafeteria when it had been closed and the furnishings went up for sale, sitting in one of the apartment alcoves. Ella had never minded polishing the old worn wood. She loved polishing all the things in Nana's apartment. They seemed to miraculously hold a past just beneath their surface, which was lush and carefree and deep, like flowers, like city lights. Something she could feel like heat as her fingers felt out their ornate crevices, and afterward they always had good green tea from a beautiful pot covered with china flowers, and Nana always seemed so happy to see everything shining and perfect like the rows of linens in the closet. Ella was very tired. Her feet burned. Her legs felt like rubber. She became afraid that she had gone out of her way, and fear closed her throat for a moment. She removed her glasses and recognized none of the blurred constellations. And it began to rain. She saw one scintillation, and it was like the first flake of snow. Was it real? The Smithsonian Institute was two blocks away. Nana had brought her here on sharp blue winter days, carrying flashlights so that she could see the insides of the dark museums. One time, when they went, self-appointed technicians had found the central power switch and illuminated everything. But usually they saw everything in the focused beam of a flashlight, in pieces. Nana liked modern art more than anything else, so Ella had seen the reclining Matisse women with hairy armpits, the two-faced Picassos, the sharp edges of Cezanne. She had also seen things much more mysterious, a pendulum that never stopped swinging, the history of atomic energy, a small thing called a capsule which had orbited the Earth. These were the things that interested her the most. Ella began to run. She was tired, but she had no choice. She had to get out of the electric rains before it began to pour. As far as she knew, there were two alternatives— she could hear ethereal singing voices or beautiful music, the intrepid Washington Post had reported, and be irresistibly drawn to a metro entrance. If you went down into the metro, you would be uploaded. The trial of her parents had taken place in Los Angeles, which had become the new capital of the United States. The Post had gotten hold of some of their classified scientific papers and published them, they were subsequently criticized by other scientists who condemned their uploading processes as being untested and dangerous. Others said that they had been tested, and that they worked, and that the entire cabinet and the president and all of the Congress had been briefed on an alternate uploading system, one that was manufactured by the company that the president had once run. As Ella ran uphill, a glow lit the grayness of the morning, and she realized that not only was she almost at the Smithsonian— she was also almost at the metro entrance for the museum. It was glowing most brilliantly now, and she stopped, panting as the scintillations increased. She only had moments before the singing would begin, before she would become one of the derelicts drunk on electric rain living in the streets or drawn down into the metro. Her parents had not been uploaded, according to the newspaper, but would they not have made copies of themselves? She had asked Nana once, and Nana had become very angry and said that those people were not her parents. They were criminals, and that they had ruined her city, and that she should be grateful to have a home at all, and that was the end of it. She kept her thoughts to herself after that, but did not stop wondering. Perhaps they were there, in the brilliant light emanating from the subway entrance. Perhaps she could see them again. 
if she just went into that glowing, beautiful entrance, down the rainbowed stairs. She took a few steps toward it, across the mall, then forced herself to stop. She looked back at the sheet-wrapped body. Nana had taken good care of her. She had to do this one thing. Even though Nana had not asked, she knew it was what she wanted. Turning, she ran under the deep concrete overhang of a nearby building and huddled down to wait out the shower. Electric rains drifted across the face of the castle, making it look magical. She could see the top of the Washington Monument. The anti-terrorist doors had long since been removed, and she and Nana had hiked to the top one lovely winter morning, and that was one of the few times she had seen Nana cry. "'My city,' she had said. "'My beautiful city.' Ella thought that she heard one vagrant melody in her head, faint like birdsong through the closed window in the spring, like all the loveliness she had ever known, like flat, clean sheets, like glowing, polished wood, like bright tulips, and she began to sing her own songs, loudly, songs that Nana had taught her. My country, tis of thee, from the halls of Montezuma and beautiful Ohio. She stood up in the concrete alcove and shouted, B-I-N-G-O, 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 and Bingo was his name Oh, The echo was almost like a round, as if Nana were singing with her, overlapping her sounds to make chords. But it was so hard to think that her own parents had been wrong, and it made her angry that Nana had never told her the truth. She began to cry, then angrily wiped away her tears. The shower was over. The slight green leaves on the trees lining the mall sparkled in the morning sun. The birds sang, and five people approached the wagon holding Nana. Three were women and two were men, walking across the tall, dry winter grass of the unmown mall. They were various ages. One woman with long blonde hair was wearing shorts and a sweater. The two men wore business suits and red ties. The other two women were middle-aged and also wore suits. The wagon was about two hundred feet away from Ella's shelter. She wasn't sure what to do. She decided to stay in hiding until they passed. But apparently they had spotted the wagon all alone out there and were heading toward it. She could hear them faintly. "'What's this?' asked one of the men. He bent down and began pulling at the sheet. The women murmured excitedly and the blonde woman smiled broadly. A body! What luck! She picked up the wagon handle. Ella, heart beating hard, ran out from beneath her alcove. Stop! They all turned, looking surprised. She's... mine. Ella was closer now, about twenty feet away. Why, how could she possibly be yours? asked one of the middle-aged women. You're far too young to have your own body. We need her smiled the blonde woman, for the greater good, so that more of us can get out and change things. You come with us, sweetie. She gestured toward the metro entrance, still glowing. She's not very old, muttered one of the men. She can wait a while. Ella fumbled in her pocket. The gun got caught on some folds, but she finally got it out. She held it steady as Nana had taught her. You can't have her. Why, you greedy little... Ella thought, sure, he was going to say, bitch. She fired over his head. The blonde woman turned pale. Ella was glad. She was afraid that they would not care if they were shot. Get away or I'll shoot you all. They all looked at each other uneasily. 
One of the middle-aged women crouched down and held out a hand. I used to have a daughter like you, honey. I know you're scared and lonely. Come with us and we'll help you out. Ella advanced steadily, still holding the gun on them. I have plenty of bullets. One of the men pulled on the blonde woman's arm. Come on, it's not worth it. It took us a long time just to get our bodies. But two. Still, they backed away slowly as of one accord. They did not turn away from Ella until they were farther away, and then they ran toward the metro entrance and disappeared into the glow. It was then that Ella knew for sure she did not want to go down into the metro. Not ever. A gray overcast crept over the sky, threatening a day of spring drizzle. Ella figured she had about three miles to go. She'd better get started. Independence Avenue was right across the street. Now it was just a few blocks' walk, past the Washington Monument and the Vietnam War Memorial. She had gone there with Nana several times. Her son's name was on the wall. Ella picked up the handle from where she had let it clank to the sidewalk and trudged on. She smelled the dampness of the river and knew well where it was anyway. She and Nana often sat on its banks and watched the beautiful lights of traffic wind along the Virginia shore, and from time to time Nana dressed them both up in finery, took a taxi to a restaurant full of crushed velvet and dark wood high above the river, sipped a tiny bright drink before dinner as she watched the lights hungrily, sometimes with a glimmer of tears, and taught Ella to like snails. She stopped. No. Neither of those were true. They were stories Nana had told her many times, stories about how it would be again once everything was right, once the electric rains were over. She was getting tired, she realized, tired and hungry and thirsty. After a long trudge, while the sky became steadily more gray, she finally glimpsed them, the magnificent naked people, the man astride the horse, the woman leading it, two identical statues on each side of the bridge and across the bridge, sat on a hill, the white mansion. Ella's arms ached, but the wagon didn't seem quite as heavy now, though she dreaded the hill. The river was swift and rushing below the bridge, and she felt as if the dragon of light was bursting through her own chest as she walked across the arch of the bridge. Once across it, she had to turn back, not forward, to get her bearings, crossing the main highway via another circle and running up the asphalt until the angle of the hill stopped her. There were only four turns now, and here, here was the stone that said Admiral James Tolliver, the man who had rescued her and then died. To the right was another stone for Nana, Rose Ann Tolliver. Nana always hurried past these stones, but Ella always saw her glance at them, saw tears well in her eyes. Perhaps she thought that Ella didn't know her real name. Perhaps she was pretending that Ella had never seen the newspaper articles. Perhaps she was pretending that, by rescuing Ella, her husband had ingested the electric rains and was lost somewhere, uploaded to an unknown future. There was no body here, beneath the stone that read National Hero. He had given his life to help prevent what had actually happened. Maybe. Maybe, because of him, it had not happened everywhere. Ella, grunting, tipped the wagon sideways. Rose Ann Tolliver tumbled out. Ella pushed and pulled on her until she was roughly aligned with the headstone. It was all she could do. She had no shovel. 
She got out Nana's old driver's license and slipped it inside of the sheet. She saw fresh flowers on some of the graves. Maybe there were real people here. Maybe they were taking care of things. She was not sure she wanted to meet them, though. Just because they took care of Arlington Cemetery did not mean that they were sane. But they might bury Roseanne Tolliver next to the memory of her husband. There was the Pentagon to her right. Five sides Nana had taken care to teach her the shapes, but somehow Ella thought she had already known. She sat below the decaying white mansion and thought of the things that could happen. The things Nana had said might happen. The day that she said might come, the day that Nana told her she had to live for. All the people living in Washington the day of the attack, the ones caught in the electric rains, the one who had rushed into the metro and been uploaded, would be downloaded. The world would be new, peace-loving, like Ella's parents had believed it could be. Those people would go about their lives in Nana's timeless, beautiful Washington. They would go to office jobs, come home to families, eat snails in French restaurants or dim sum in Chinatown. They would think, read, do research, go to concerts and plays. They would walk the lovely tree-lined streets of Washington with friends and relatives. They would not be afraid of the rains. But when would that be, Ella wondered. And why would they be any different than the people she had just met? How long was she supposed to polish the furniture, iron the sheets, and plant the dwindling supply of tulip bulbs? And how was this supposed to happen? Were there really people elsewhere? Normal, old-fashioned people, not rain-mad? In California? Was anyone flying the monitor planes? Was there any place the electric rains had not reached? A place where they were doing all the things Nana had longed to do, or figuring out how to do them very soon? What would happen if the electric rains fell on her, and there was no place to run to? No metro where she could be uploaded? Would she just go mad herself? Nana might not have thought that these were good questions to ask, but she did. Ella rose from the damp ground and brushed leaves from her pants. She picked up the wagon handle. The wagon would be useful. Goodbye, Nana, she said, and walked down the narrow cemetery road, heading west. <laughs> There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Kathleen's. And again, please pop over to Lightspeed Magazine. Subscribe to everything they, they're doing. <laughs> Similar as that, just cover the board and then you, you, you're getting some fantastic material. Next up is Our Cheap Skates by Adam Perlot. Like I say, this has turned into a nice, fascinating little fact article. If you're just, you know, a bit thrifty with it. <laughs> I'm not, you know, my, the money falls out of me. I wish I could save the bloody thing. But if you are a little bit careful with your money, listen to Adam, and Adam will take you around the best places to get free books. Adam. Hello to my fellow coach class passengers on Starship Sofa. My name is Adam. Welcome to another edition of the Cheapskate Review, helping you to sort out the best from the rest in free ebooks and audiobooks. Now that we have a first episode under our belt, I want to start off this podcast with a bit of a meta discussion on ebook readers and audiobooks. I've considered myself a traditionalist when it comes to reading. I love beautiful books, especially hardcovers. I love even more to own them. 
Somehow when I hold the physical books in my hand, I don't just own the paper. I own the story and the world contained inside of it. It's something others in my life haven't always understood. Case in point, when I had just graduated from high school, I found in the bookstore a beautiful copy of Lord of the Rings, the Millennial Edition. Pitch black hardcovers restored to the original seven book divisions and titles. They were beautiful. I drooled over them for weeks. Finally, the manager of the book section had mercy on me and gave me a huge discount on them. I'm certain they probably took a loss on the books. As I was thinking him profusely, he waved it away, saying only, I just love getting books into the hands of people who love them. That still makes me get a little watery-eyed. That bookstore manager understood the power of owning a book. Later, I was showing the books off to someone who, for privacy's sake, will remain anonymous. They looked these beautiful books over and, to my astonishment, said in a bit of a baffled tone, But didn't you already read these from the library? Why did you need to buy them? For those of you with open mouths right now, you know how I felt. How do you even begin to explain? Anyway, it's needless to say that I never thought I would be someone who listened to audiobooks, much less someone who read on one of those e-book things. Then I graduated college, had a family, and started delivering pizzas, in addition to being a newspaper reporter, to make ends meet. This is when I discovered that audiobooks on CD and cassette could keep me up on my reading, even if it wasn't my preferred format. I eventually discovered podcasts and listened to those and digital audiobooks almost exclusively. Even so, I still felt an aversion to ebook readers. If I was going to read text, I wanted an actual book, I thought, not some shiny, glowing electronic device. Then there came what I think of as the Target incident. It went like this. I was browsing in the electronics department at Target and saw the Kindle display section. I'd heard about Kindle, of course, but had never seen one in person. I walked up to one of these non-functioning demo models. You know, the kind that are just there to give you an idea of the size, weight, and button placement, with a piece of paper over where the screen should be. I fiddled with a button, and to my surprise, the fake paper cover flashed and displayed the first page of a book. As I'm sure you've now figured out, it wasn't a non-functioning shell after all, but the real thing. It was a shock akin to picking up a newspaper and discovering that I'd picked up a copy of The Daily Prophet from the world of Harry Potter with moving pictures. What I discovered was that with a so-called e-ink display, featuring a matte finish and a bright white background, it's almost possible to forget you're using an electronic device. Almost. The Kindle is essentially a sophisticated magnadoodle, which means it leaves a lot of ghosting effect, unless it clears that out with a full black and white flash. This is somewhat distracting. Imagine your paperback page disappearing and reappearing every time you turn a page. It's also so thin, it's hard to know just how to hold it sometimes. Still, if you want to carry hundreds of books in the size and thickness of a video game user manual, check out the Kindle, or one of the other excellent readers out there using e-ink, such as the Nook. If you're dubious, I'd recommend checking out a demo model in the store like I did. You'll know pretty fast whether you like it. These e-readers are also ideal for those who want to read while keeping their hands free, have vision impairment, or need to blow up the text size, 
or like me, you like all the free content out there. Which brings me to today's selection for the Cheapskate Review, A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I want to be clear up front, I didn't decide on this one because of its mention on the Everything section of the podcast several weeks ago. No, I'm somewhat abashed that my first exposure to A Princess of Mars was one of those targeted ads that pops up on Facebook. It was a trailer for Disney's movie John Carter. Yes, Disney. Releasing March 9th in the U.S. and the U.K. As I watched tusked, green-skinned, six-armed aliens, furry, white, six-armed somethings, and a bare-chested guy leaping hundreds of feet into the air, all to the tune of Led Zeppelin's Cashmere, I could only think to myself, what the heck is this? What the heck it is, I found out, was a movie based on one of the foundational books of the science fiction, fiction genre. I am, again, humbled to admit that I'd never heard of it before. But it provided inspiration for Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, George Lucas's Star Wars, and even James Cameron's Avatar. Moreover, it inspired a generation of young people who grew up to lead the space program, particularly science, scientist and writer Carl Sagan. I knew none of this as I downloaded and read the book. Neither did I have the benefit of any rose-tinting from childhood nostalgia. So, my apologies if parts of my review sound somewhat jaded. I didn't read Burroughs' work until I was a jaded adult. If the name Edgar Rice Burroughs sounds familiar, but you can't quite place it, it's because he's probably better known as the author of the Tarzan novels. And while he's more famous for Tarzan, the John Carter novels actually came first, serialized in All Story magazine in 1912 under the title Under the Moons of Mars, earning Burroughs about $400. It was only after Tarzan was published in book form that the Mars stories began to be published as novels. A Princess of Mars gets off to a promising start, with Burroughs inserting himself into the book's frame story. His assertion that the book is the first-person journal of his beloved uncle and Confederate Civil War veteran, John Carter, lends an air of intrigue and authenticity from the outset. As the executor of Carter's estate, Burroughs supposedly received Carter's instructions not to publish a story for 21 years after his death. Burroughs goes into particular detail about the funeral and burial arrangements. The most intriguing portion is this. A strange feature about the tomb, where his body lies, is that the massive door is equipped with a single, huge, gold-plated spring lock, which can be opened only from the inside. From there, the story launches into a first-person narrative, as told by John Carter. It's really more of a spaghetti western at this point, complete with some truly cringe-worthy descriptions of Native Americans— a lot of savages this and fiendish that. Carter describes traveling with a business partner to Arizona and striking a rich vein of gold. Not having the needed tools, his partner goes off while Carter stays behind. From a distance, Carter sees him go through a mountain pass, pursued by three suspicious figures following him. Fearing, and ultimately finding, the worst, Carter pursues and recovers his friend's body. Soon, he is being pursued himself into a mountain cave. And then Carter goes to Mars. Just how he does this is frankly baffling. 
But even in the midst of my confusion, I was struck by one of the many beautiful passages Burroughs put down. To quote, Few western wonders are more inspiring than the beauties of an Arizona moonlit landscape. The silvered mountains in the distance, the strange lights and shadows upon the hogback and arroyo, the grotesque details of the stiff yet beautiful cacti form a picture at once enchanting and inspiring, as though one were catching for the first time a glimpse of some dead and forgotten world, so different is it from the aspect of any other spot upon our earth. As I stood thus meditating, I turned my gaze from the landscape to the heavens, where the myriad stars formed a gorgeous and fitting canopy for the wonders of the earthly scene. My attention was quickly riveted by a large red star close to the distant horizon. As I gazed upon it, a spell of overpowering fascination. It was Mars, the god of war. And for me, the fighting man, it had always held the power of irresistible enchantment. As I gazed on it, on that far-gone night, it seemed to call across the unthinkable void, to lure me to it, to draw me as a lodestone attracts a particle of iron. My longing was beyond the power of opposition. I closed my eyes, stretched out my arms toward the god of my vocation, and felt myself drawn with the suddenness of thought through the trackless immensity of space. There was an instant of extreme cold and utter darkness. And then he suddenly, inexplicably, on Mars. It's not long before Carter runs across the Green Martians, tall, warlike, lightly clothed, egg-laying, and with a propensity toward extra limbs, like most of the Mars or Barsoom natives. It's here that you get a sense of the most distracting and frustrating aspect of these books, which runs throughout the length of the story. It's that cardinal sin of fiction writers, telling instead of showing. It's particularly jarring at the beginning. He's no sooner set foot on Mars than he's giving whole treatises on the planet and its inhabitants, geography, culture, weather, all things he couldn't possibly know within the story at that point. Rather than let us discover the planet along with Carter, Burroughs gives us a lecture series, and it takes the reader out of the moment. Here's a passage I found the most jarring, as Carter describes how most Green Martians ultimately die. The other 979 die violent deaths in duels, in hunting, in aviation, and in war, but perhaps by far the greatest death loss comes during the age of childhood, when vast numbers of little Martians fall victims to the great white apes of Mars. Now, at this point in the book, we have not been introduced to these big white apes. It comes out of nowhere, like a sucker punch from, well, a giant white ape. I swear, after finishing the book, I still have no idea what these apes are all about. They only show up at one other point in an episode that's completely irrelevant to the rest of the story. Moving on. Carter, by virtue of his near-superhuman abilities, resulting from Mars' lower gravity and his prodigious ability to kill, manages to get himself simultaneously revered as a chief among the Green Martians, at the same time he's their prisoner. Go figure. As Carter describes the Green Martians as savage, uncivilized people, I couldn't help but see it as just an extension of how Carter views Native Americans back on Earth. From a modern perspective, 
I ended up considering him an untrustworthy narrator. It left me wondering what the Green Martians are truly like. There's more than a little hypocrisy in Carter's descriptions, as he seems more than willing to deal out brutal death at the drop of a hat himself. The Green Martians soon attack what turns out to be a peaceful scientific expedition of Red Martians, basically humans like those of Earth, except Red. Captured from the hovering ships is the Princess of Mars of the title. She's introduced as, and I quote, Deja Thoris, daughter of Mors Kajak of Helium. Okay, I'm going to digress here. Helium? Really? Helium? I was going to give Burroughs the benefit of the doubt, but no, Helium was discovered years before these books. Every time I saw this name, I couldn't help but picture an entire population of high-voiced people. Now, back to your regular review. Carter predictably falls in love with Deja. This is largely, I think, resulting from her state of undress at a level one would expect in a novel aimed at adolescent boys. What follows is a long series of escapes, battles, switched alliances, and loyalties as Carter tries to claim her love. Much of this stretches believability. Most astoundingly, as Carter pulls off the sword-under-the-armpit stage trick to fake his death. And it works. But there's also much that's quite good. For a story first written a hundred years ago, it has held up surprisingly well. True, the language turns difficult at times, and I found myself appreciating the Kindle's onboard dictionary, which helped me look up the meaning of a word with just a few clicks. Sometimes superbal prose turns particularly florid, and I had to remind myself that I wasn't reading Dr. Seuss. Here's a typical passage. They did not molest us, and so Deja Thoris, Princess of Helium, and John Carter, Gentleman of Virginia, followed by the faithful Woola, passed through utter silence from the audience chamber of Lorcus Tommel, Jed among the Tharks of Barsoom. A zizzer zazzer zuz, as you can plainly see. For the record, Wula is a six-legged dog-like creature, and I want one. Anyway, once I got past the stilted language and the broad plot points, I was able to see the progenitors of modern sci-fi tropes, albeit through the veneer of the science of 1912. For example, I couldn't help but see Star Wars land speeders in the hovering one-person transport vehicles, but they're powered by an eighth ray of the visual spectrum. That's right, these land speeders are powered by a color. Again, Burroughs recognized the need for atmospheric generators on Mars, but these are powered by, you guessed it, a ninth color in the spectrum. What's more, these generate breathable air through transformation of the ether. Yes, the ether. In any case, A Princess of Mars is a fairly short read, and you'll know quickly whether you want to continue with it and the rest of the series. There was a sense of nostalgia that even I could sense as an adult. It reminded me of discovering my dad's old stash of yellowed westerns, and how much fun a pure adventure romp can be. For a while. The first five books of the series are available for free in the public domain, from Project Gutenberg, Google Books, the Internet Archive, Amazon Classics Library, and the like. In addition to A Princess of Mars, there's also The Gods of Mars, The Warlord of Mars, Thuvia, Maid of Mars, and The Chessmen of Mars. If audiobooks are more of your thing, 
LibriVox also has two versions available, and they are both competent. I recommend the version read by a single narrator throughout. The other one is a bit jarring, as you go from one accent to another, few of which are from the southern United States. Whatever you do, don't fall for one of those enterprising folks who have bundled the first five public domain books into a single e-book and are selling them for 99 cents on Amazon. Not worth it, my fellow cheapskates. For my part, I think I'm going to pass on reading more books in this series and the John Carter movie in favor of the modern works that Burroughs' work gave rise to, rather than the work of Burroughs himself. But let me know what they're like. I'd be curious to hear your take. Oh, and let me know how I can get my own Wula. That little six-legged guy is awesome. That's all for this episode of the Cheapskate Review. Theme music is by the great Jonathan Colton under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. Tune in next time for my review of Nathan Lowell's free audiobook, Golden Age of the Solar Clipper series. This is Adam reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. There you go. So this is next little bit is like I say a new little section. Hopefully I'll try and get some you know writers there to kind of narrate their works or maybe get some of the narrators that come on board Starships over just to give a few little chapters of a new book that's coming out and David Constantine a pseudonym for Dave Williams, The Pillars of Hercules. This is steampunk, basically set in the age of Alexander the Great. Do you know what I mean? Well, you gotta. You, just fantastic centering on kind of epic journey to the west to kind of find this lost tech and magic artifacts from atlantis do you know what i mean that's just like you just want to get lost in that and like i said this has come from david j williams who did the the autumn rain trilogy and that's the first one in that collection was the mirrored heavens then we had the burning skies and the final one was the machinery of light and even just if you go over to Dave's site, you know, his website for that collection of books, you just get absorbed into it. But this new one, you know what I mean? This is what I'm kind of hoping, you know, let us know what you feel. You know, is this, does this kind of excite you? Do these opening chapters, you know, because it always says, you know, it's the the beginning of a story that kind of hooks you in there and actually say, you know, the first couple of paragraphs. Does this story, is this story something that you might like to buy, you know, when you've listened to these opening opening chapters? It is narrated by David Williams, David Constantine on the book. Let us know what you think. Starshipsover at gmail.com. You know, plus, you know, myself and David will be just uh, interested to find out if this is a nice little twist on, you know, you y- enjoy this. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present the opening chapters of The Pillars of Hercules by David Constantine. Alexander the Great's Conquest of the Persian Empire took a mere five years, after which he turned west again. Athens, which had expected to enjoy her vast Mediterranean possessions, while Alexander became embroiled in endless eastern wars, was suddenly faced with a battle-tested Macedonian army. For even as Alexander declined to become mired in a perpetual campaign in Afghanistan, His sorcerer spies were unearthing ancient magics from beyond the Hindu Kush, magics with which he intended to crush the Athenian Empire and rule the known world. It was to be the ultimate conflict, and it began when Alexander unleashed his full might on Athens' most vulnerable province, 
that of Egypt. Chapter 1 The bar he was in had a name, but Lugorix was too drunk to remember it. And right now he was intent on getting even drunker. So far, his plan was working. Everything had gone blurry a while back. The other mercenaries, the assorted whores, the drinks being passed around like they were going out of style. All of it was starting to swirl around his head. And the bedlam taking place outside the bar had long since subsided as the party inside got ever louder. Which didn't mean that news wasn't still reaching those within. He's across the Nile, said Matthias suddenly. Ligorix turned blearily toward the smaller man who sat across the table from him. His best comrade in all the world, but right now he was just a fuzzy haze. Ligorix tried to focus on that grinning face, but found himself distracted instead by the patterns on the cloak that Matthias wore over his archer's armor. Ligorix wondered how he had never noticed that the cloth was made up of no less than three different shades of grey. He was starting to think there was actually a fourth when... Did you hear what I just said? Heard you, replied Ligorix. Greek wasn't his strong point. Didn't realize you needed a response. There is no response, said Matthias, his grin widening still further. We're all fucked, so drink up. That's what I've been doing, friend. The Dryad's Tits. That was the name of the bar. It wasn't one of the classier ones. The smell of sweat and puke mingled with the aroma of a particularly rancid roast mutton that only became remotely edible when wanted down several drinks. The Gorix and Matthias had been in the place for more than an hour, though it seemed like far longer than that. Various low lives kept bringing Matthias news, but all the reports trended in the same direction. All orders had ceased. The city's commanders had fled, and the defenses of the Nile Delta had collapsed. It was every man for himself now. Problem was, there was nowhere to go. You say he's crossed the Nile? asked the bartender. In several locations, replied Matthias. Slice the spine of Egypt, is what I'm hearing. Elephants and cavalry and Zeus only knows how much infantry. Never mind all that, said the bartender. What about him? And for a moment, the conversation immediately around Matthias faltered. Nothing too overt, just ears perking up here and there. King on his response. Even through the haze of booze, Lagorix was feeling the same way. But Matthias only shook his head. No idea, he muttered. But it can't be long now. He didn't spare any mercenaries in Asia, said someone. No reason he should spare us now. So what the hell went wrong? Said the bartender. Magic, said Lagorix suddenly. And gold, added Matthias. Way too much of it. Whole Persian treasuries his to dispose of, right? Reckon everybody above the rank of captain got bought off, and the generals got top billing. They'll be living in villas on the Tigris for the rest of their lives. At least they sold out for a good price, said someone. Well, speaking of, said the bartender, you guys owe me half a drachma for that latest round. Matthias reached down beside the daggers along his belt, opened up a pouch, tossed coins onto the bar. Better spend that quickly, he said. Not like I'm the one who's forfeit, said the bartender. Legoric started laughing. The bartender glanced at him. What the hell's your problem, Gaul? <laughs> Not just my problem, said Glagorix. Yours too. The Max will burn this whole city to the ground, same way they burn our fleet. No, interjected Matthias. Not the same way at all. Sacking the city, it's just going to be business as usual. The fleet. Now, that was the magic, said the bartender. Another quick pause in the conversation. Matthias glanced around at some of the watching faces. So what, he asked. You all know he's gained access to whole new types of sorcery. What's going on outside is proof of that. Can't find magic, said the bartender. Sure you can, said Matthias. He started restringing his bow. You just need sorcerers to do it. And all the ones we had to hold the delta are either bribed or dead by now. 
Your arrows won't help you any more, said Ligorix, a tad vindictively, but he was tired of Matthias acting like he knew it all, especially when they were all waiting to sell their lives in one final stand, which would probably occur on the roof of the bar, perhaps within the hour, certainly before morning. Neither will your axe, replied Matthias evenly. Don't be so sure, said Ligorix, patting the axe, which he'd christened Skull Seeker for reasons that were obvious enough to those who'd had the misfortune to face it. It was intended for two hands, though he was strong enough to wield it with one if he had to. The weapon was primitive but effective, its double-headed blade made entirely of stone, except for the bronze that lined its razor-sharp edge. He had a sword as well, but generally preferred the axe. Bartender, said Matthias, another round here. Man's final hour shouldn't just be about alcohol, Ligoric said. What else would you have them be about, said Matthias. Women, Matthias laughed. Well, that's why we came to this bar. Couldn't help but notice you've been sucked off at least five times in the last hour. Of six, actually, but Ligoric wasn't going to quibble. This bar was easy pickings to begin with, and his long blonde hair, fulsome beard, and yard-wide chest made it even easier. That and his trousers, something a no-self-respecting Greek would wear, thereby making Lugorix the proud owner of a truly exotic fashion. No doubt about it, Greek women had a thing for barbarians, but, as usual, Matthias had misunderstood him. Not talking about my dick, said Lugorix. talking about yours. What about it? You so plastered you want a piece? I'm saying you should get a piece. So far you've had nothing. Ah, that's because I'm saving myself. For what? The right girl? Right. Lugorix turned as the door of the bar opened. It was a woman, all right. The oldest he'd ever seen. She looked like she was native Egyptian, too. Dark, wizened skin and white hair that must have been once as black as her eyes. Now she scanned the room, and all who regarded her looked away. It was as though with the crone's arrival, an apparition had stepped into the bar, physical harbinger of the fate that awaited them all before the night was through. The only ones who weren't intimidated were those who were far too drunk for common sense. That's your girl, said Ligorix, nudging Matthias. Shut up, hissed Matthias. But the woman's eyes had already turned in his direction and gone wide with recognition. She's coming this way, whispered Ligorix. I can see that, idiot. You know her? Not that I know of, said Matthias. Looks like she knows you. Will you shut the fuck up? The crone reached them. Ligorix realized she was wearing a headband of some kind, almost like a tiara, though bereft of jewels. She was toothless, too, and he was tempted to make some joke about how that might aid her and whatever she might do to Matthias. But then she looked directly at him, and all his alcohol-fueled levity vanished. Her eyes up close were the realest thing he'd seen all night, the realest thing he'd seen in years, the truest thing since that night in the Pyrenees on the eve of his banishment when the shaman of the thunder god Tyrannus had bid him look within the fire and behold his fate. And in those fires he saw his future, the flames of burning Egypt, though it was only now that he remembered them. The woman reached out, stroked his beard, chills shot up and down his spine, and he seemed to look down into abyss. Old mother, he said, enough. Mercy, I beg you, she stopped reached out to Matthias, ran a hand through the ringlets of his black hair. The gesture was almost playful, but the expression on her face was anything but. You're the ones, she said in accented Greek. Matthias and Ligorix looked at one another. I'm sorry, said Matthias. You heard me, she said. My mistress needs you to come with me. The words echoed through Ligorix's skull in a way that made him realize that he and Matthias were the only ones who could hear this witch for such was what Lugorix was now assuming this woman was. No one else was even paying attention anymore. The party had resumed around them. He felt his legs start to move of their own volition, felt himself get up, 
But Matthias seemed to be putting up more resistance. Why should we, he asked. Because otherwise you'll die, said the woman. Ah, said Matthias, we're going to do that anyway. True, such is the fate of all mortals, no, but not necessarily this night at the hands of Alexander's soldiers. The Gorex was too far gone to even process this. Matthias mulled it over, then donned his helmet. The Gorex disdained that, but the two had long since agreed to disagree on the matter. The crone led them to the door, opened it on a sight that was anything but pretty. There you go, it's out now from Nightshade Books. I'll put a link on to the site, The Pillars of Hercules. Do pop over there, you know, if you do like it, please grab yourself a coffee. But let us know as well, that would be fantastic, and I'll be able to pass on any messages to Dave as well. Lovely. Thank you so much. That is Starship Sova, show 230. Hope you enjoyed it. I hope you like see it like that little kind of new section. I'll try and get some more, and we'll get a run of them, you know, and see if you like that. You know, just putting a few chapters of a book. And don't forget, over on our sister show, Tales to Terrify, coming up this week, we have the second part of the Bram Stoker Awards collection there, where we're, we're playing the, the best at best achievement of short stories, I think it's called. We have a Stephen King story, no less. <laughs> we are mad playing Stephen King. Wow. I actually felt like putting it on this show, but, you know, Larry got Larry signed his life away, so I had to give it to Larry. <laughs> <laughs> he was straight in there. Didn't have a chance. So, until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Stories that you receive procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.